and welcome back to another episode of the Behind the Stigma podcast. Today we have another one of our education series, which are 10-minute episodes discussing theories, constructs, and ideas in psychology and mental health. I'm your host, Ciara Minova, and today's discussion is on metacognition. Let's get started. So first, what is metacognition? To put simply, metacognition can be understood as thinking about thinking. What does that really mean, thinking about thinking? Well, it's our beliefs about our own thinking processes. Think of yourself when you look in the mirror. What do you think about yourself? How are you thinking about yourself? And what will be the results of your own thoughts? These are examples of metacognitive questions. Metacognition can affect people's self-evaluations and is closely linked to self-awareness, but it can also be linked to other concepts like learning, memory, cognition, problem-solving, as well as decision-making. The phrase was first used by the American developmental psychologist John H. Flavel in 1979, and he conducted many interesting studies to understand this concept, one which we'll get into later on in this episode. But first, it's important to understand that there are different types of metacognition. We'll look at it from four different processes now. The first is our own subjective states. The second is our self-concepts. The third is how others perceive us. And finally, thinking of how cognitive processes work in general. So let's go into these in more detail. First is our own subjective states. This involves our thinking and understanding of our own feelings, our own emotions, and other internal experiences. So this can include recognizing our emotional state, such as identifying when we feel sad or anxious, as well as understanding the factors that contribute to these feelings. For example, we might be able to identify that we feel anxious when we have a deadline approaching and connect that the anxiety that we are feeling is related to our perception of the task or the exam or whatever that's coming up as being difficult or stressful. But we don't always accurately understand the factors that contribute to our internal experiences. For example, you may believe that you're in a good mood because you woke up, it's the weekend, it's a Saturday, but it may actually be related to the weather because it's sunny outside and the environment is the real reason your mood has been impacted. Next is self-concepts. This involves our awareness and understanding of how we see ourselves and our own character. In other words, who we think we are. This can include recognizing our own strengths, our weaknesses, as well as understanding how our self-concept influences our behavior and interactions with others. For example, someone might be able to recognize that they have a tendency to be shy in social situations and understand that this affects their ability to make friendships or form connections or form certain types of relationships. Of course, just like subjective states, our self-concepts aren't always accurate either. Studies have actually shown that we tend to over-attribute our good qualities and brush off our negative ones. For example, we may see ourselves as more smart and capable than we actually are. Similarly, we tend to over-attribute our good qualities and undersell our negative ones. However, people who suffer from things like low self-esteem and rumination and anxiety may actually see the opposite effect, where they attribute themselves to be worse off than they really are. Next is our perception by others. This is an interesting one because it involves our awareness and our understanding of how other people see us and how our behavior and communication affect the way that we are perceived. For example, someone might be able to recognize that they come across as aggressive when angry about something, and they may adjust their tone of voice and adjust their behavior accordingly to avoid this type of perception. Or you might assume that others think you are professional because you come into work in a suit every day. 
Our behaviors are reflected on how we think others see us and vice versa. Perception by others can play an important role in how we end up behaving. If we think other people view us as boring or uninteresting, we might not end up speaking, reinforcing that behavior until people actually do see us as boring and uninteresting, feeding off to that perception. But these metacognitive processes are also evident in persuasion. How you try to persuade another person depends strongly on your own thoughts and how you think the other person thinks about you and what they will or will not be convinced by. Such a twist. And finally, there's cognitive processes. So how we think of cognitive processes in general. And this is related to our awareness and our understanding of how we think and learn. So this can include things like recognizing our own learning styles and preferences, as well as understanding the strategies that are most effective for us when trying to learn new information or solve problems. For example, you might be able to recognize that you learn best by breaking down complex tasks into smaller tasks, more manageable steps, and you use the strategy to tackle challenging tasks more effectively each time. As adults, we tend to have strong metacognitive abilities, obviously. But one question that Flavel, the psychologist I spoke about earlier, tried to understand is, do children have metacognitive abilities? Meaning, can they think about their own thinking style? In one of his studies published in 1979 called Metacognition and Cognitive Monitoring, Flavel and his team investigated the development of metacognitive knowledge and monitoring abilities in children between the ages of 6 and 12. They asked the children a series of questions designed to assess their knowledge, their metacognitive knowledge, i.e. understanding of their cognitive processes and their monitoring abilities, so their ability to assess their own understanding and performance. The study found, and this may seem obvious now, that the development of metacognitive abilities is a gradual process where older children obviously are more likely to recognize that different strategies might be useful for solving different types of problems, while younger children tended to rely on a single strategy regardless of the problem. But one of the most interesting aspects of this study was the discovery that metacognitive skills are not always accurately aligned with actual performance. For example, even though a child may believe they understand a task very well, their performance may not really reflect that belief. Although older children were better at judging their own performance than younger children, these findings highlight the importance of metacognition, a separate and distinct construct from performance, and suggest that people's cognitive abilities can sometimes be inaccurate. Another interesting study on metacognition was conducted by Mark Delonsky, another professor of psychology. And in this and in this study, the researchers investigated the effectiveness of metacognitive strategies for learning and retaining information. The study participants were divided into two groups. One group was instructed to use metacognitive strategies while studying, such as monitoring their own understanding of the material and periodically evaluating the accuracy of their memory. The other group did not receive any instruction and simply studied the material as they normally would. The results showed that the group that used the metacognitive strategies had better recall of the material, as well as a better understanding of what they had learned. Additionally, the participants who used metacognitive strategies were able to apply the information they had learned to new situations more effectively than those who did not use these strategies. This study highlighted the benefit of using metacognitive strategies for learning and retaining information, and it provides evidence for the importance of metacognition in promoting effective and efficient learning. By becoming more aware of our own thought process, we can improve our ability to learn and retain new information. Well, it's great that humans have metacognitive abilities, thanks to the development of our prefrontal cortex. But a question that I personally find interesting is, do animals have metacognitive abilities? I'm sure as a cat lover or a dog lover, you must have thought at some point, does my cat self-reflect? Does he think about what I think of him? Scientists have debated the question of whether animals have metacognition for many years. Several studies have shown that some primates, such as chimpanzees, are capable of 
indicating uncertainty in certain tasks, certain experiments, um, one which is called the delayed matching to sample task, suggesting that they have metacognitive abilities. Also, dolphins have been shown to recognize their own reflections in mirrors, which is considered a test of self-awareness. One example of a study on animal metacognition, as I mentioned earlier, is the delayed matching to sample task in which an animal is shown an object and then he has to select the same object from a set of distractors after a delay. If the animal is uncertain about its choice, it can indicate this uncertainty by selecting a I don't know response. This type of task requires the animal to not only remember the original object, but also to monitor its own memory and confidence in the decision. However, some scientists and researchers have argued that the animals may use simple heuristics or trial and error learning strategies rather than actual true metacognitive abilities to associate this. As for cats... Unfortunately, we don't have enough evidence to suggest that they may have metacognitive abilities, but let's not listen to the science just this time. I prefer to think my cat is thinking about how much it wants me to love him, and he can't wait till I'm back from work so we can cuddle and watch movies. Well, in another universe, actually, because I don't even have a cat, but, you know, a girl can dream. Anyways, another very important aspect or concept in understanding metacognition and behavior is the self-discrepancy theory. And I find this theory particularly useful for myself as well. The self-discrepancy theory is a psychological theory that explains the ways in which we think about our self-concept. These are, first, who we think we are, second, who we think we ought to be, and third, who we think we want to be. So the first is our actual self. The second one is our ought self, and the third one is our ideal self. Let's go into them in a bit more detail as well. The actual self is the way a person sees themselves, so the way you view yourself based on your own self-perception and how you believe other people perceive you. The ought self is the person you believe you should be based on the expectations of others and society. So this can be people like your family or the people at work and your friends and etc. And then finally, the ideal self is the person that you would actually like to be. That includes what you hope for, your aspirations and your goals and the things that motivate you and you imagine for yourself. So according to the self-discrepancy theory, when there is a significant gap between the actual self and the ideal self, or the actual self, ought self, and ideal self, individuals experience negative emotions such as anxiety, guilt, shame, and discomfort. So these negative emotions and psychological discomfort are the result of the perceived discrepancy between the different aspects of the self. Why is it useful to make these distinctions? Well, it's important because the difference between them or the discrepancies basically influence what we feel and what we do. For example, if you are someone whose ideal self is to be physically fit and healthy, but your actual self is overweight and unhealthy, you may experience negative emotions such as shame and guilt and kind of play on to that. And similarly, if a person's ought self is to be responsible and a productive employee because that's the way they should be at work, or that's the way they think they should be, but their actual self is lazy and unmotivated, they may experience negative emotions again, such as anxiety, because they don't live up to that ought self. The self-discrepancy theory helps to explain how people develop and maintain their self-concept, as well as the negative emotions that arises when there is a perceived discrepancy between these aspects of self. And it also helps us understand that if we set a more realistic ideal self, it may be less daunting when comparing where you are at the present to where you want to be at the end or the ideal. 
We talked more about this in one of our previous episodes of New Year's resolutions, where setting realistic goals can be more helpful, both for the goal setting and for our mental well-being. If interested, you can listen to that episode called The Psychology of New Year's Resolutions um, on the Behind the Stigma podcast. But as you saw, metacognition is an important skill to have when we want to become self-aware of our thoughts and who we are. When we notice ourselves having an inner dialogue about our thinking, it prompts us to evaluate our learning or problem-solving processes. Then we are experiencing metacognition at work, and the skill helps us think better, make sound decisions, and solve problems more effectively. And as always, I would like to end it with a quote to reflect this episode. Metacognition is the key to unlocking the door to a more fulfilling life. It is the ability to step back from our thoughts and feelings, to observe them with curiosity and compassion, and to make conscious choices about how we want to respond. It is the foundation of awareness, self-regulation, and self-improvement. Without metacognition, we are at the mercy of our own automatic reactions and unconscious biases. We are trapped in our own mental prisons, unable to break free from the patterns of thought and behaviors that keep us stuck. And as John Flavel himself said, metacognition is the voice in our head that tells us whether we are on the right track or not. Well, there you have it. We have reached the end of another one of our education series episodes. I'd like to remind you that this barely touched the surface of our understanding of metacognition, and I would highly recommend you check out John Flavel's work, as well as the relationship between mental disorders, particularly depression and rumination tendencies with metacognition, if interested in learning further. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. If you did like this episode or found it interesting, please do either subscribe, leave a review, or support us in any way you can. Your support would mean a lot to us. Thank you guys once again, and we'll catch you in the next episode.